Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Institute of Government event uh, talking about how the UK can be a force for good in the world and what we can learn from the G7 summit held in Cornwall last month. My name is Tim Durrant. I'm an associate director here at the IFG. Uh, and as well as the IFG, we're very grateful for all the support of the British Red Cross in organising this event. Now, as you know, last month, the UK hosted the G7 Leaders Summit in Carvis Bay, Cornwall. Uh, Boris Johnson hailed the summit as an opportunity to demonstrate how the world's democracies are ready and able to address the world's toughest problems and said that it was an example of the UK striving in unison with our friends for a greener, safer and fairer world. The summit was a key moment for the UK to demonstrate what Global Britain is all about and how it can play a leading role in the recovery from the pandemic. So today we'll be looking back at the G7 and discuss what we learned about the government's vision for Global Britain, as well as looking forward to think about what the government's ambition should be over the coming years to ensure the UK acts as a force for good in the world. To discuss all this and more, we have a fantastic panel joined today by Mike Adamson, Chief Executive of the British Red Cross, which is part of the worldwide Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. In this role, Mike is responsible for all of the British Red Cross's UK and international work. Baroness Amos is the Master of University College Oxford, former UN Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, and a former UK Secretary of State for International Development. Tobias Elwood MP is the MP for Bournemouth East, Chair of the Defence Select Committee and a, minister, a former Minister in the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office. And Leila Johnson-Salami, who is joining us from Lagos, is a freelance journalist, the founder of the We Rise Initiative and a founding member of the Feminist Coalition. So before we start the discussion with our fantastic panel, I will just make a couple of, of quick housekeeping points. Please do send in questions throughout the discussion uh, using the Q&A panel on your screen. Uh, we'll get to as many of them as possible. Can't promise we'll, we'll manage all of them. If you see one in particular that you'd like uh, asked, there's a, a like function. So use that so we can see which ones are popular. And please do include your name and where you're watching from, particularly if you're overseas, so uh, we can see sort of who, who is watching and where from. We are live tweeting this event. Uh, from our IFG events account using the hashtag IFGG7. So if you're on Twitter, please do join in that conversation too. And uh, a video and sound recording of this event will be available on our website within 24 hours if you'd like to catch up on any of it again. So with that, let's begin. I will ask some questions of the panel and then we'll have a bit of discussion and I will bring in questions from the audience throughout. So Mike, if I could start with you, what does the UK being a force for good mean for you? And was that on display at the G7 summit last month? Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to have this opportunity. And um, of course, the, the British Red Cross and the world, worldwide Red Cross movement welcomes you know, the British government setting out its ambition as a force for good, because I mean, how the UK responds to some of the uh, the incredible global challenges we face at the moment will define, I think, how we see ourselves as a nation, actually but also how our partners and allies see us around the world. And I think the big question is, is this uh, an overarching ambition? Is it a guiding philosophy for the ways in which that will work in the future? Or is, it, or is it a slogan that will be rolled out at critical moments when, when government is, is seeking to take some kind of action under that, under that kind of uh, epithet? Um, you know, we're very committed to working with government in, as a force for good, um, but we, what we want to see it is as, as that kind of guiding philosophy. 
And around the world, the Red Cross movement across 192 Red Cross and Red Crescent societies in virtually every country in the world, 14 million. Oh, Mike, you've just gone on mute. Apologies. Did it just go on mute, Tim? It did, yeah. We heard most of what you oh. said. Okay. So is the worldwide Red Cross movement uh, with 14 million volunteers and 192 Red Cross and Red Crescent societies um, you know, who are responding to fires and floods and the consequences of climate change, responding to conflict zones around the world every day. And um, you know, no matter how bad the pandemic <clears throat> has been here, you know, it's hard to imagine how it's been for families in places like Lebanon, the Sahel, Yemen, uh, Bangladesh. I was talking to some frontline volunteers in the Lebanese Red Cross last week who'd responded to the terrible explosion they report um, almost a year ago and talking about the situation in Lebanon where you've got economic collapse layered on top of a country with four and a half million people with one and a half million refugees from Syria also trying to cope, cope with uh, COVID. It's just the, the impact on people and their everyday lives is just, just enormous. And you know, as the as we come out of, we hope as a, as a nation, uh, the uh, COVID um, period, and you know, we debate whether to wear a mask, a mask on a bus or whatever. We've got to remember that many parts of the world are still affected by these three big three C's of COVID, climate, and and conflict, compounding each other, often on top of fragile uh, health and uh, economic systems. Um, and we've seen the situation in India, but we know that. Uh, parts of Africa and Asia are really bracing themselves now for the potential impact of a, of the uh, of COVID as it rolls rolls around the world. So humanitarian leadership is really desperately uh, needed now, and Britain has always endeavoured to punch above its weight in the world. And there's definitely you know so much more that we can do. And against that overarching philosophy, that standard of global Britain, yeah, you know, there are some promising signs and some some good things. But but I'd say that actually our record or our outlook is actually rather patchy. And I'll just give a few examples. Um, firstly, in terms of the recently approved G7 G7 Famine Prevention Compact, you know, there's a lot to to admire in that, with the emphasis on protection of populations. The role of principled humanitarian action and international humanitarian law and the recognition of you know, over 170 million people in 42 countries facing uh, the impact of food insecurity. But it desperately needs an implementation plan, a financing plan, um, performance metrics, technical advice and support to show how we'll actually make that a reality. On, you know, secondly, on vaccines, you know, again, we welcome the intent that we see. But low income countries have received something like 0.2% of the 700 million vaccinations that have so far uh, been de delivered. We welcome the ambition that 60% of the world's population should be vaccinated by the end of 2022. But so far, the commitment on doses would only enable us to reach around 8% of the world's population. So there's a big gap. And then there are other institutional barriers that we that we see as well. The, the issue of intellectual property, temporary waivers of intellectual property rights to allow vaccines to be manufactured in other parts of the world. And Britain has not got behind that move. There are barriers in terms of the role that humanitarian agencies can play in reaching some of the hard to reach groups, particularly migrant populations in parts of countries that uh, governments cannot reach, where pharmaceutical companies need to be supported to offer um, way again waivers of liability to enable us as agencies to take on some of that role. And we're also all aware, I think, of the 
uh, fragile community health infrastructures in some of the countries that really prevent, make it more difficult to roll out um, and get you know jabs into people's arms and actually a real challenge around that that we, that we need to get behind. And thirdly, on climate, you know, we cannot allow COP26 to fail. So it's great to see the various relatively small commitments of funding on things like early action and anticipatory finance. It's also see, good to see a big ambitious number of $100 billion as the uh, commitment around all these, the commitments being sought uh, to for, for climate finance. But we also have to recognise the reality that less than 3% of the climate finance money that has so far uh, been mobilised has gone to developing countries. And that's a, a huge gap when we think about actually the challenges that those countries are already facing in terms of adaptation and resilience building to the climate changes already affect them, never, affecting them, never mind what is to come. So we want to see at least half of that money that's being committed for uh, COP26 uh, going into the actual practical steps around cl climate change, adaptation and resilience um, uh, you know, right now um, to enable them, to, uh, you know, communities and families to be to be more secure. And it's hard not to reference aid cuts. You know, when we look at the issues here, when we look at the issues of, of cuts in aid and still uncertainty about whether those the 0.7% will be restored. We look at issues like domestic asylum policy, uh, which of course reflects the consequences of events around the world where effectively the right to claim asylum in the UK is, is you know, is being removed in, in the proposed sovereign borders legislation. So for Britain, we really admire and want to get behind Britain as a force for good, but we want to see that as a guiding philosophy in everything we do. And the acid test for it will be whether the funding and implementation plans um, get behind the rhetoric to enable us to make a difference to some of the lives of the most vulnerable people around the world. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. Um, I think that's a, a great introduction. Lots of uh, stuff to pick up on there in, in more detail, um, particularly around some of the seas, particularly COVID and, and climate. Um, Baroness Amos, if I can turn to you next, and I wonder sort of if you'd like to reflect on, on what Mike said, but also on that specific point he raised about um, uh, the cuts to the aid budget. How How is that playing into the UK's ability to, to be a force for good in the world? Uh, morning, Tim. Morning, uh, everyone. And it's really interesting. I was uh, telling a colleague that I was going to be involved in this discussion uh, this morning about Britain being a force for good in the world. And his immediate response was, are we still? Uh, which I think uh, says a lot about not just how we are seen uh, globally, but how we are actually being seen uh, by our own uh, citizens. There's no doubt that we've had some major uh, achievements uh, in the past, and I think that we have squandered in the last few years a huge amount of global goodwill. And I think that uh, the decision that has been taken on the 0.7% has actually fed into that. Uh, there's no point talking about an intention in terms of uh, global Britain, an intention in terms of Britain being a force uh, for good. It's about what we do. It's not just about uh, what we uh, what we say. I think Mike talked about it as um, a slogan. It has to be about more than that. What does it actually mean? And what does our leadership, what does our government mean when they speak about these things? Uh, yes, we have policy documents, but how are we translating that into how we behave uh, in the world? 
So a couple of things um, I think uh, which are important. We potentially have significant influence. We have wielded that influence in the past in both a positive and sometimes in a negative way. But our membership of uh, the Commonwealth, the role that we have played with other uh, uh, European uh, countries, how we're going to renegotiate that relationship going forward is going to be important. Uh, NATO, our membership of NATO, our membership of uh, the UN Security Council. I think it's really important and I think the first thing uh, I would like to say is that we really need to relook at our engagement with those global organisations. Um, how we behave, how we use the influence that we have in those global organisations is critically important, uh, including uh, within the UN uh, more broadly. And our role within the UN Security Council, I think, is particularly uh, important in relation to that. Secondly, what do we mean when we talk about the UK being a force for good in terms of the broader human rights uh, agenda? There was a lot about China at the G7 um, and in particular in relation to the Uyghurs. But of course, it is about more than that. We can't pick and choose which countries we're going to engage with on a human rights agenda and others that we are not. Um, you know, with countries in terms of the role that we are playing in relation to conflict resolution and uh, mediation, but at the same time selling arms. I mean, what is going on in Yemen, for example, is an absolute scandal. And what role are we playing in terms of trying to resolve that conflict that has gone on for such a long time? I don't even want to touch on the issue of uh, Syria, which was very much uh, on the agenda when I was at the United Nations and has somehow kind of slipped down uh, the agenda but continues to be a major issue across uh, the world. Climate change and environmental sustainability has already been mentioned. We're looking forward uh, to COP, a big agenda there. Um, huge contradictions in how we as the UK are engaging uh, on that issue. Uh, one thing that I think is absolutely critical in terms of the broader humanitarian agenda is around food security around the world. It is a dis disgrace that we are still seeing famine uh, in so many countries across uh, the world when we have an issue uh, in relation to uh, wastage in some other parts of the world. How are we engaging on that issue? How are we demonstrating uh, leadership? And then significant issues around uh, the millions of people around the world who are displaced both internally uh, and externally in terms of a growing refugee uh, population. Uh, UNHCR are talking about the biggest uh, numbers for decades uh, in terms of forced uh, displacement. And what does it mean for our own policies in relation to uh, not just migration and uh, immigration and our borders, but also how we are living up to the international uh, commitments uh, that we are engaged in. And finally, uh, just touching uh, on issues around uh, the right to health, to education. Uh, we've touched on the issue of uh, COVID and uh, vaccines and the commitment to you know, a billion uh, vaccines by uh, the G7 in the next two years. It is not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. The G7 
the G20 countries really need to come together to work with the countries in the developing world to make sure that we don't have the kind of vaccine nationalism that we have seen up till now. But it's about more than that. It's also about how are we working together to build the health systems uh, in those countries to ensure that the people in those countries begin to have the kind of access to de decent healthcare that is needed around the world. The focus on girls' education uh, that we need. We know that the more girls are educated, it has a major difference in terms of uh, the economies, uh, the health of the people in those countries. So this remains a key issue and issues around uh, sexual uh, harassment and uh, violence. The more we have communities, countries in which we see the kind of high levels of violence that we continue to see uh, across the world, and this is not just a developing country issue, it's a developed and a developing country issue, it speaks to the way in which uh, women, women's voice is actually uh, valued in those countries. This has to be a huge part of the agenda. And I don't think cutting our agenda, uh, cutting our aid budget at this point in time, when we could use it in a much more effective way to actually deal with some of these major issues is something that the leadership of this country should, uh, should be doing. Brilliant. Thank you. And then again, another sort of, you know, really useful uh, tour of, 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 of lots of the sort of big issues. Um, Tobias, if I could turn to you now and, and ask again for your reflections on, on what the UK being a force for good means and perhaps picking up on, on a thread in, in what uh, Mike and, and Baroness Amos were saying in terms of, you know, there's a lot of talk. Is the UK really putting it into action? Is, 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 are the actions matching the rhetoric? Well, firstly, thank you uh, for inviting me on this uh, panel. Great to see uh, the, the other contributors and, and build on, on what has always been said. I think there's going to be agreement here that uh, global Britain is important, but we could do more. I think that's a summary. Uh, but I'm going to start from a rather bleak position and say, why is it so critical? And perhaps the journey that the G7 is taking, but you know, we've really got to go much, much further. And I suppose that's beginning I pose with this question that I've actually set to the Prime Minister, to other think tank groups, to military leaders. Do you believe the world is going to be safer or more dangerous uh, in the next five years? And for most people, the answer is very, very clear that global security in our ever complex, confusing world is on a worrying glide path. And right now, there is no grand plan, no strategy to be able to deal with this. From my perspective, a defence security perspective, uh, the threat picture is greater and indeed more complex than during the Cold War. Uh, but if there was one positive outcome from the G7 summit in Cornwall, there's a realisation that unless the world, the, the West becomes less risk averse, regroups and reunites, the next decade is going to get very bumpy uh, indeed. Just to put that into some form of qualification, you know, it's been said that there's very much a 1930s feel to the world at the moment. Authoritarianism is on the rise. Geopolitical power bases are shifting. International institutions are unable to hold errant states to account, non-state actors as well. And rival states are seriously upgrading their hard power. And to make matters worse, there is a, it seems to be an absence of what 
you know, of Western resolve and leadership has been touched on already. What we believe in, what we stand for, what we're willing to defend. And I think Russia and China warrant specific mention. The former is an acute threat to European interests as Putin seeks to revitalize Russia's superpower status. And then China, you know, the long-term geopolitical threat as it's an ever-confident and assertive Beijing seeks to lure ever more states into its infrastructure, technology, and military programs that progressively expands its soft power influence across Asia and now Africa. But there are three uh, other factors that we need to bear in mind as well. Firstly, is changes in technology, which are altering our ways we communicate, do business, socialize, indeed how we're interacting now. But our very openness offers access to both state and not state acts, non-state actors to disrupt our lives beneath the threshold of direct conflict through disinformation, intellectual property theft, election interference, and of course, cyber attacks as well. Secondly, there's COVID, which has been mentioned already, but this has actually seen nations retreat from global exposure, become more siloed and more protectionist. And of course, finally, but most critically is climate change, which is already having an impact on security and governance in some of the most vulnerable parts of the world. Storms, floods, droughts, and so forth will continue to affect agricultural productivity. It'll damage economies and lead to mass migration that we've not seen uh, yet. So these are massive challenges for us to, to wake up to, and we really do need to work uh, together. And only by working together uh, can we realize that individually can we start putting out fires and, and uh, take a, move, move uh, the world in a better direction. So what is it for Britain? Well, massive opportunity. We mentioned before, we are a nation that stepped forward, perhaps when other nations hesitate. It's in our DNA to lead. But I'll be honest with you right now, there's an awful lot of good words out there, but I don't currently see the uh, bandwidth in, in Whitehall to really embrace this. We are fortunate to see a new administration come in in the United States. You know, President Biden is taking a very different approach to this than Donald Trump, thank goodness. Um, the Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic uh, Agreement is also, uh, the Atlantic Charter is another great example of us wanting to, you know, provide the energy, determination, statecraft, thought leadership to put these uh, uh, energies together to regalvanize and rejuvenate the West. But there's an awful lot of work to do. And I really do believe that Whitehall needs to expand its ability to be able to deal with the post-Brexit environment, COVID as well, and a horizon plan as to what's coming. Because like I said, I, I finished by saying the decisions that we make, the direction that we go, the energies we put in over the next 10 years could determine how uh, the next few decades play out. It's in our you know, ability to take advantage and to be proactive, but we need to move up a couple of gears right now. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I, I think another theme that's emerging for me is this question about yeah, the sort of the strength of the global system, the kind of international cooperation. I really like to unpack that a little bit more shortly. But before we get to that, can I turn to our, our fourth panelist, Leila? And thank you again for for joining us from Lagos. So, Leila, you're you're in Nigeria, but you've studied in the UK. Can you tell us a bit about you know what is the view of the UK and and the sort of this idea that the UK can be a force for good in the world from uh, from your vantage point from from Nigeria and and West Africa more generally? 
Thank you, Tim Firstly, and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, what I would say is if we're looking at the UK being a force for good and what that means um, in countries here like Nigeria, we need to see the UK taking a very modern stand from a trade, social and economic perspective. And right now, I think that there's quite a bit that's lagging. Um, G7 commitments were nowhere near enough and nothing, um, they were far short of what personally I expected to see. I'd like to speak on climate for a bit um, because that's an area that as a journalist, I'm focusing heavily on at the moment here in Nigeria. And climate financing since 2009, the developed country goal was $100 billion a year um, for, developed for developing countries, sorry, up until 2020. Now we know that at the G7, there were commitments to continue climate financing and the UK in particular is committing an extra 11.5 or 11.6 billion up until uh, 2025. Now, one huge issue that we're facing here in Nigeria when it comes to climate change is the illegal wildlife trade. And I know that the UK government is currently paying a lot of interest to the illegal wildlife trade here in Nigeria. I was with the British High Commissioner to Nigeria, Katrina Lang, last week at a conservation wildlife center, um, speaking further on the illegal wildlife trade. Now, so much has shifted in the past 10 years. And I think that if the UK really wants to take a certain stand and a global stand on these issues, then what it needs to do is go a step further. Nigeria right now has the largest ivory trade in Africa. We are both a source and a transit hub for ivory. We also have the largest pangolin trade in Africa. In 2019, half of all pangolin scales that were seized worldwide came right here from Nigeria. Now, the UK is focused and committed on ending this illegal wildlife trade. However, I go into the markets, into the wet markets to speak to market sellers who know nothing except for selling pangolins and snakes and antelopes and any other sort of wildlife animal that you can think of. And they are not going to listen to you when you come and say to them that we need to end this because it's bad for your health and it's bad for the environment. They do not know any better. So we cannot speak about trying to change these issues until we start to look at poverty, until we start to look at corruption. And I think the UK needs to have a clear-cut strategy on exactly how it wants to go ahead with tackling certain issues in Nigeria if it really wants to succeed in doing so. Because we can't say we want to end the illegal wildlife trade when these people who are involved in selling these animals and don't know that they're doing anything wrong won't have anything to eat if laws come into place and are enforced where wet markets are shut down. So I think there's a lot of work to do in education and ending corruption. And obviously in bringing Nigeria out of poverty, we're the poverty capital of the world. And if the UK really wants to uphold itself and really wants to have that status of a modern global Britain, then it does need to start looking at these issues, which it already does, but in far more depth. That's what I would say. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, yeah, fascinating sort of uh, insights there. So I, I think a lot a lot to, to get into um, from um, from what people have said already. Again, thank you for those of you in the audience who've sent in questions, but feel free to send in more. We're always interested in them and I will get to them shortly. Um, before I do that, I do want to- Tim, can I come back on three quick things please, um, yeah, that, struck, that have struck me from um, the opening comments, um, uh, which uh, I think have really set out a very clear um, agenda. I think uh, the first is to come back to uh, something that, that Leila has talked about, which is the real importance of this agenda being joined up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why the multilateral 
institutions are so important. We have seen uh, a moving away, um, or we saw uh, indeed a moving away from engagement with those uh, institutions, with uh, the UN, uh, with uh, NATO and so on, um, particularly under the the Trump administration. Um, But I do think that uh, as the pandemic has shown us so clearly, and we know this in other areas as well, if the countries aren't working together and working together through organisations like the World Health Organisation, UNHCR, the World Bank and others, we are not going to be able to deliver an ambitious global agenda. Uh, and we certainly aren't going to be able to uh, deliver an ambitious uh, British uh, agenda in the context of all the other things that are happening uh, across the world. So making sure that these institutions, the kind of rules that we have put in place, uh, yes, some of them uh, need revisiting, but making sure that they are really working is absolutely key. And my second point relates to that, but also links back to something that um, Tobias said. Um, Because uh, Tobias talked about the world being more siloed and protectionist, and in some ways it is. But what we also saw, which I think is really important in the context of how the world tried to deal with the reality of uh, COVID is that we saw, for example, countries on the African continent uh, wanting to work uh, collectively in partnership in a different kind of way and actually not having the opportunity to do that. Um, If you look at what um, the the, uh, envoys um, for the African uh, Union have been uh, talking about uh, recently that they they came together, they tried to buy uh, vaccines um, for countries across the African continent and actually were prevented from doing that because of the bilateral deals that had been done uh, by richer countries uh, in the world. I mean, uh, Strike Masiwa made um, some searing comments about this uh, last week. So actually, We've seen a real retreat um, from basically the richer countries who feel that they don't need to work together or operate uh, across uh, these global institutions. And I really hope that that's uh, going to change. And my my final point uh, links to that, too, which is about partnership. And the partnerships need to be beyond the richest countries. They need to bring together uh, the developed and the developing world. The G20 has been uh, the mechanism for trying to do uh, that link. I think we need more than that now. Uh, Of course, we need to review what we have. Our multilateral systems haven't necessarily been working as effectively as we want them to work. But without them, I think what we want to see happen on this agenda, we're not going to be able to deliver. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Really useful uh, to pick up those threads. So, Mike, I'm going to turn to you. I think you've got something to add on this. And then, Tobias, I would like to ask for your views on this question of the kind of the multilateral system. So, Mike, first. Yeah, I mean, uh, we comp- we would completely recognise, I completely agree with the, f- the, the recognition of this as a kind of systemic thing. So we have to look at our connections to other nations. Uh, there's no question about that, who, who we can form common cause with uh, in order to bring about change in the whole system. But actually, it all needs to be rooted 
in, in a sense of what are the, what are the needs to which we're trying to respond. And I, you know, same happens in some of domestic policy. You end up talking a lot about the politics and the institutions, and actually not rooting it straight. You know, from where are the greatest needs, and how do we bring about the biggest change? And what is the role of civil society as well in enabling that to happen? And again, you know, as we look for the areas or evidence of traction, uh, you know, and points of traction within the ambition of uh, Britain as a force for good. We need to also then look at you know what are some of the staging points you know in you know upcoming you know G20 COP26, uh, but also government's commitment to develop a, a development strategy uh, during the course of 2022. We want to see a recognition of of, of uh, need as the basis on which we actually uh, focus our effort. The role of civil society, the role of local localization, local actors um, in responding. And of course, you know. I would say this, wouldn't I? But you know, in every country in the world, the Red Cross and Red Crescent Society is a local actor. But there's also other civil society actors who actually, when emergencies happen, it, those folk who actually respond first in an emergency. And I think that we need to weave into our language of the politics and the UN and so on. But that needs basis, um, and, all, and that was also important, I think, for the British public to make a connection with this. They can identify with the needs of people around the world if the stories are told in the right way, and then also start to see some self-interest um, in actually providing the support and help because of the consequences in the way that Tobias so eloquently described in terms of population movements and so on that people then worry about here. So let's root everything into, in, into need. Great, thank you. I think a very, very important sort of principle there. So Tobias, um, yeah, one of the themes here is, is this sort of question of joined upness, um, how, how different multilateral organisations can work together and then bring in Mike's point about sort of, you know, the, that connection between the sort of global and the local. Um, do you think, uh, you know, with, you mentioned uh, President Biden, is, is, is that the change of administration in America, is that a return to the multilateral system or is it, are we sort of it's still in, in its kind of dying days? Uh, no, I think it's positive news that uh, the United States wants to play its role on the international stage. Uh, you know, I, I sort of joked about Donald Trump, but he actually gave opportunity for authoritarian states to advance their own agendas. And not only that, but I touched on technology, you know, changing the world. We, we know that that's happening, but the rules themselves haven't kept up. So a massive cyber attack, for example, does that trigger Article 5 NATO response? Uh, if something happens in space and somebody takes out your satellites, you know, how do we actually have the checks and balances in place? Who do you go to to complain about, you know, errant behavior from a state? The United Nations itself, because of the permanent count, permanent membership setup, means that it's often paralyzed in trying to uh, deal with some of the challenges that we face today. So we have a rules-based order that served us well uh, post the Second World War, but boy, is it needing updating now. And like I said, if we don't start to update it today, in the next few years, we will set the tone for the rest of the century. Let's come to terms and recognize the fact that this will be China's century, militarily, economically, technologically, they will advance, arguably larger, more powerful than the United States. Now, we need a, a method, a mechanism, uh, to make sure that we can all work together from a trade perspective, from a security perspective as well. And I worry at the moment that the world is splitting splintering into two spheres of geopolitical uh, contrasting influence, where nations themselves, many African countries and Asian countries as well, are being obliged to look one way or another, to get involved with programs which often they can ill afford with China, uh, using very different standards and values. We are, 
I'm afraid, heading towards another Cold War. But it's a soft power Cold War, which is why I absolutely agree this is the wrong time to be reducing our aid budget, our profile, because Britain has been very proud of our desire to help shape the world as a force for good. We've done that through our connectivity, our understanding of what's going on in the world, and then stepping forward, taking other nations with us. And us retreating in this way is not a good look for a UN Permanent Council, a Security Council member, nor is the only G7 uh, state to be reducing our budget as well. I'm pleased to see that there's a debate today over the weekend that we might be reversing that. But damage has already been done. And I can't stress more that the West doesn't really need to regroup. And Britain and America have always been in the sort of forefront of perhaps crafting uh, the way to go forward and then bringing other nations with us. And, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for us to do that again. Thank you. Um, uh, just to pick up one... Can I just... with you, Tobias? Um, uh, and, and I'll say why. I mean, yes, I think it's important. I think it's really important that we are clear about what our, uh, what we can do and what we what we want to do and how our our potential leadership feeds into that. But I think we also have to have a degree of humility about who we are and who we're working with. And one of my concerns, and this is my point about, you know, what kinds of partnerships are we looking to create? One of my concerns is that we're constantly looking to the countries which are richer, more powerful, as opposed to embracing uh, alliances which actually take on board um, a wider uh, network of countries for a variety of uh, reasons. And of course, um, we have uh, history, um, not necessarily a positive history with uh, many countries given our uh, colonial and um, imperial past, but how we deal with that history and how we create those uh, partnerships going forward is incredibly uh, important, and I think we need a degree of humility uh, in terms of the way we think about uh, the leadership uh, that we can demonstrate in the modern world. And I think it has to be much more about working in a consensual, collective uh, way. The other thing I would say is that um, we have self-interest. All countries have self-interest, so let's not pretend uh, that we don't. But Let's be real about that and let's not wrap up uh, those, uh, that self-interest in terms of then saying this is about us acting in the collective interests of uh, the world. I think if we were more honest about that, I think our relationship um, uh, with some other countries would be much, much more positive. And uh, just one other quick point. Um, uh, back to Mike. Mike, I, I think the partnerships uh, with civil society, all of that is incredibly uh, important, particularly at uh, the operational level, how those global commitments translate into what we do um, at the local level. But I am not convinced that we should be thinking about, you know, our future uh, foreign policy uh, aid, defence and other agenda just on, as it were, a needs base now. We have to be thinking about the future too. What kind of world is it that we are thinking about uh, in 5, 10, 15 years time? If we just get locked into uh, needs now and thinking about framing international institutions around needs now, 
we lose that sense of what contribution are we seeking to make in relation to our future. That sense of optimism that our young people uh, desperately uh, need and which they are fighting for through the campaigns that they are engaged in and the things that they care about. You know, climate change, uh, issues around uh, Black Lives Matter, issues around uh, violence and uh, harassment of uh, women, how we are supporting uh, girls' education. There has to be a future element uh, of that uh, agenda. And then, of course, how we uh, link into the partnerships with uh, civil society, the corporate sector, how they each have a role to play is critical uh, in that. But I worry slightly about it all just coming down to operational needs now. So thank you. Thank you, Baroness Amos. I think really, really uh, interesting. I will uh, try and pick up on some of those points, but I want to uh, make sure we, we give our audience a chance to ask some of their questions. So picking up, I think, on, on one of the things that you just raised, uh, Baroness Amos, about um, you know, what is the UK's kind of, you know, rationale for, for this, its global action? So Mary Dujewski has asked, uh, I think quoting your initial remarks, Tobias, it's in our DNA to lead. Is it really? And how much of an asset or liability is this attitude internationally? And then following up on that, we have a question from uh, Major General Tim Cross, who says, having been involved in many deployments over the decades, I often found myself asking when the countries being discussed will be able to be responsible for their own futures. So I guess, Tobias, perhaps if we can go to you first and your reflections on those and, and the points that Baroness Amos made. And then Leila, you know, I'd be interested to hear your views on how is the UK perceived? Does the UK, is the UK seen as a leader and, and should it be? So Tobias. Yeah, and these are very important questions. And I, I, firstly, I think there is a desire and we have the means to also help shape the world um, beyond our shores. And, and we should participate in that. We sit at the crossroads of so many international organizations and therefore it's I think in, in inherently our duty uh, to be able to participate from that perspective. We're fifth largest economy in, in the world, we've got one of the largest military forces as well but the standards and values that we uphold I think are respected and revered from across across the world and that's why it's so critical. You know the G7 was all about consensus, this is you know Valerie Amos's point, it, it isn't just about us doing what we want to do, it's bringing nations with us. That's why I've, I've advocated the G7 expand to include India, Australia, South Africa and Korea, for example, like-minded democratic nations. When you just put those 10 nations together, you get over half the world's GDP. That's quite a powerful starting point to say these are the standards of which we should move forward in this technological age of movement of data and so on, how we trade on uh, in, in methods and mechanisms that work for today because we know that they are out of date. We know that countries like China and so forth are not abiding by them, but are adopting very different rules, their own interpretation. So absolutely, we need to upgrade, but we need to do it by consensus. We need to take nations with us. But yes, that's what Britain does well. We've illustrated that in the past, and I think so in the future as well. That's why we have the reputation, international reputation. And indeed, you posed the very question here, you know, what should Britain be doing? Uh, Leila, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this question? Um, what I would say is that honestly what you find is that there is 
probably no one living in a country like Nigeria that used to be under Britain's colonial rule that doesn't want their country to be flourishing on its own without any support from international organizations and governments. Now, Nigeria is 60 years old, post-colonial rule, <clears throat> pardon me, and I feel as though we are still a very fragile democracy. And if the UK and other countries really want us to get to a point where we do not have to look for aid in the form of either loans or grants or whatever the case may be, then we need to see sincerity in the support that we're getting here. For example, if we take vaccines right now, what we what we don't need is for the next couple of years for a bunch of vaccines to just be thrown to us, you know, okay, we need to send more vaccines to Nigeria, to this country, to that country. No, what we need is sincere support in letting us and giving us the capability to set up our own vaccine production centers here at home so that we can get that going. So we need support in setting up our institutions in a sincere way. And honestly speaking, I don't think that has been done by Britain um, in the past few years. And I don't think that Britain can say that it's really played a role in trying to change those sorts of issues here in Nigeria, a huge and fundamental role, um, with all honesty. I mean, should we speak about the fact that the UK um, was also responsible for training a lot of Nigerian police officers, and um, this was brought up back in the books last year during the NSAS process here in Nigeria, where people started to say, hold on a second, if we're getting training and support from the UK, why, what, what kind of training are, are, are these officers getting when they're acting like criminals on the road and literally robbing you um, in broad daylight, you know? So there are a lot of things here that, there are a lot of gray areas that the UK needs to be honest about. And Nigeria also needs to be honest about because change starts at home and you can't always expect that people are gonna do things for you. Um, but I think this is why sincere partnerships are key because we do want to get there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if I can bring it back to to the pandemic, so obviously this is, you know, it's going to be an ongoing context uh, of, of all kind of international discussions. Um, at the, after the G7, um, Gordon Brown described um, the, the G7 leaders as guilty of an unforgivable moral lapse because of this failure to, to guarantee enough vaccines. You know, there was this pledge of a, a billion vaccines, but, but the, the view is that much more is needed. Um, Mike, I was wondering, if I can ask, A, do you agree with that assessment? And then B, picking up on, on Leila's points and, and something you made earlier about, you know, it's not just about the, the big numbers that make the headlines. It's about how do you actually deliver them? How do you get them into people's arms? And how do you support countries around the world to ensure that they can build up their own supply? Um, what, what, what needs to be done? Well, uh, no, I, I agree with, I mean, I, just to put on that the record, I, mean, I agree with Baroness Amos in terms of that actually you need a balanced, you need a balanced approach to this that is future oriented, but you can provide aid in ways that either undermine local capacity or the ways that develop local capacity. Um, and actually, yeah, and also you can um, pro provide assistance at key moments that provide, that prevent a whole lot of development gains, be they for individual families and communities um, or for countries being being lost um, if with the right investment. You know, the old adage of a stitch in time saves nine. Um, is, and, you know, that's arguably never more true than in the context of the COVID um, uh, response, where actually um, the impact on the health and economic gains that, gains that countries have made of failing to invest in vaccination uh, rollout around the world is is potentially enormous, um, and yeah, the, and we need to look at systematically. We've talked a lot about systems systematically. Of what are the barriers to making that happen in every country in the world, 
and that is um, is the availability of the vaccine itself. Um, but it is, as we've touched on, uh, the uh, quality of the community health infrastructure and how we invest in long term um, the ability of uh, community health systems around the world to actually uh, to vaccinate people. But it's also looking at the institutional barriers that we ourselves, you know, we in the G7 countries put in place, be it around the um, temporary waivers of intellectual property to allow the manufacture of vaccine in other parts of the world and therefore to increase the supply that's available. And that's a developmental approach to an emergency uh, situation. As I touched on earlier, um, there are roles that international agencies like the Red Cross, but also others, can play in vaccinating uh, marginalised groups who governments may not be able to reach. But at the moment, the, the liabilities that we would face um, in doing that, um, uh, that the pharmaceutical companies will not, will not accept. We need a way to, to offset those. So there are a whole range of ways in which we can take a more developmental approach to preventing gains being lost and actually address the hum humanitarian health crisis. And we know it's a health and economic crisis, uh, but then in, do it with a long-term philosophy behind it. And those are some of the things we need to see, those, those, those simple big changes um, that actually will enable um, us to have, you know, to, to, to achieve some of the ambitions set out by the end of 2022 of 60% of the world's population being vaccinated. We've got to work it through systematically. Brilliant, thank you. Tim, let's let's be honest here. The the G7 announcement on vaccines was actually woeful. Um, you have a huge amount of oversupply in some of the richest uh, countries uh, in the world. I think it is absolutely understandable uh, that governments want to make sure that their own people are vaccinated uh, first. I completely appreciate that. But if you look at the kind of um, uh, volume uh, that uh, I think 60% um, of the vaccines have gone to the richest countries uh, in the world. So there's an oversupply issue. In the short term, it's about vaccines and it's about the distribution of uh, vaccines. But Leila is absolutely right. How are we building, uh, working to build capacity uh, in those countries? How are we uh, ensuring that there is um, uh, a commitment to developing the skills of the health workers uh, in those uh, countries. One of the points that uh, Mike uh, has raised. What about uh, manufacturing uh, capacity? Um, there's been an announcement last week about building a, a hub in uh, South Africa. That is very, very good news. The African countries themselves, through the Africa D, uh, CDC, but also through the uh, AU, have really been grasping uh, this agenda and saying very loudly and clearly, uh, this is what we need on our continent uh, to make sure that we can uh, make progress. And I think that that is a really good thing. But Gordon Brown is right. The actual announcement that came out of the G7 was woeful. Uh, let's not uh, forget that. OK, thank you very much. So what I'm going to suggest now is we have a bit of a quick fire question round because there's some lots of questions for individual panellists. So I will start um, with, uh, well, one, one comment from uh, Katrina Lang, uh, the UK's High Commissioner in Nigeria. So thank you, Katrina, for joining us. Uh, Katrina says that she fully agrees on the need for more systemic joined up approach, um, which we've been talking about. And IWT is a really good example of this. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. Um, Katrina. So a question from T. Wright uh, from 
for, for Leila in particular, he says he or she says uh, poverty, corruption, education and equality issues need to be tackled for any global efforts to work. How, Leila, do you see Nigeria playing a part? Honestly, I see Nigeria playing a part. Um, let me take that back. It starts with leadership. It starts with the right leadership. Um, in Nigeria, we have suffered under poor leadership for far too long. And unless you have the right leaders in place in your own country, certain things are not going to change and certain things are not going to get better. We need to look at the realities right now. Nigeria is the poverty capital of the world. We have the highest out of education statistics in the world. Girls' education is particularly worrying at this point in time and education for people with disabilities, obviously because of the pandemic. And honestly, my most frank answer to that is that it starts with the, it starts with the right leadership here at home. The 2023 elections are just around the corner here in Nigeria. Um, from next year, which is now in a couple months' time, people are going to start com um, campaigning, etc. And um, Mrs. Lang, who's on the on the um, conference call with us right now, um, I believe at a point in an interview with another Nigerian media house, had said that it would be nice to see more women coming in, more young people coming in, and that's what we do want to see. We want to see a fresh Nigeria. And it's just a case of whether this will be. So leading up to that, we need to ensure that we get as much support as we can with electoral reform here in Nigeria um, and with ensuring that the elections coming up in 2023 do go smoothly um, and are smooth sailing. I think that's a very, very important hurdle for us to cross to see a better Nigeria. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, uh, another quick question uh, for Tobias this time um, and, and from an anonymous uh, questioner who says, um, interested to hear your opinion on whether the civil service is currently set up to design and deliver the, the grand strategy that we, we are agreeing is needed. Do we need a new department that focuses on bringing all of those threats and how to meet them together? It's a very IFG question, so thank you, anonymous. Uh, yeah, a really important question because it is actually the professionalism, the depth of our civil service going back you know, for millennia that has, has allowed us to actually provide that thought leadership. You know, think of the Middle East, the Camel Corps. It's us really having people that understand uh, the issues and concerns and provide the ministers then with the, the clarity and direction. But it comes to the point that's already been made. It does require leadership. And I'm afraid I made the point of early on, you know, Whitehall needs to expand its bandwidth. Still, despite the merger, which I disagreed with between DFID, the FCO, these organizations, um, trade, for example, and the MOD, still operate in silos. You take Mali, for example, or even Nigeria. You know, what is the work that we're doing to tackle Boko Haram? How does that link in with the other aspects of our involvement in, in Nigeria? It should be part of an overall strategy to support, you know, the, 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 the local plan. And my view is that we should have the role of a deputy prime minister here in the UK with the arc of responsibility for trade, for uh, foreign affairs, for international development and for security as well. So you can actually bring those elements together. I, I, I pose the question, you know, what is our purpose? We've sent troops to Mali. What is our long term vision, our hope, our aspiration? I'm, I, I'm still unclear as to what we are trying to achieve there. There may be a higher mission that I'm missing out of, that we're participating in, but I've yet to see it. Great, thank you. Um, you know, uh, Institute of Government is always interested in the structures of Whitehall, so uh, if, if anyone does want to set up a big new future-facing department, we'd love to, we'd love to hear about it. Um, 
Uh, one one quick uh, final quick question, um, and then I'll start wrapping up. But um, this is from Louise at MSI Reproductive Choices, and she says, "Thank you, Baroness Amos, for your comments about girls' education, which has has been a theme throughout as well. So, uh, do you agree that a key enabler for for girls' education is sexual and reproductive health and rights, and we should ensure the programmes delivering on things like access to contraception, abortion, family planning advice are well supported?" Very short answer, yes, I 100% um, support that. There are three things when you look at uh, women and girls that are critically important for us uh, to address. Um, one is uh, women's, uh, as it were, role in the home, issues around uh, reproductive health and so on. Uh, the second is in relation to uh, violence. And the third is in relation to women's employment uh, opportunities and particularly uh, around uh, how women are remunerated for the work that they do. Obviously, there are a whole bunch of other things that have uh, an impact on women and girls. But these are three mega themes that are really important for us to address. Thank you very much. OK, so I'm going to ask one more question um, uh, and I will uh, give that to Mike. So, Mike, we've been talking about um, the G7 and the UK's uh, sort of uh, role as a force for good in the world. Uh, the next big international event that the UK is hosting is, of course, COP26 at the end of the year in Glasgow. We've talked about that a little bit, but from from the British Red Cross's point of view, what would a successful COP look like and what would you hope the UK achieves as as the host? Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to uh, make a very, very big difference, um, and, but, and, and also to address a, a threat. And so there needs to be a combination of things. There needs to be serious commitment to address a global temperature rise and do the things that will actually help prevent that. Um, you know, serious um, uh, investment in new technologies that will allow us to live and work differently um, in order to, again, reduce the impact of, uh, of climate change. But there also needs to be this a really significant investment in climate change adaptation and resilience that help people and communities stay safe. And if we do that well, both in the context of climate change and in the context of COVID, it is developmental as well as um, as well as responding to the immediate threats. And whether that's about the role of um, you know, rebuilding embankments in Bangladesh and, and places around the world very prone to flooding. I mean, that's a developmental process and it protects development gains through to the role of cash in programming at local level that enables people to make choices about their lives and avoid selling the seeds that would actually be the things they would plant in the next harvest. There's, we need serious investment in the adaptation and resilience that takes place at community level to keep people to keep people safe, uh, to harness local organisations, and that will be a uh, under the banner of climate change, but will have benefits way beyond climate change, and will help strengthen some of the, in some of the other areas we've talked around community health infrastructure and other aspects of capacity building, the role of civil society, and will connect up up to the system changes that we want to see globally need to look at it through that whole system lens, but really focus on uh, strengthening communities. Brilliant. Thank you. I um, just to make sure we keep to time, uh, I'm going to suggest we wrap up there. I feel like we could keep talking for a much longer. Um, thank you to our fantastic panel, um, Mike Adamson, Baroness Amos, Tobias Elwood and Leila Johnson Salami for joining us. Uh, lots of really interesting themes there. I think a key one for me is um, the question about implementation of all of this. Um, thank you again to uh, the British Red Cross for their support in organising this event. 
And uh, this is one of a series of events we've done at the IFG recently about the G7 and Global Britain. So please do check those out on our website if you are interested as well. They include a conversation with former ambassadors Peter Rickett and Peter Westmacott about what Global Britain really means. Um, thank you everyone for asking questions. Apologies if we didn't get to yours and uh, do stay tuned to the IFG to see more on this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Bye.